The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, we experience horror in the trenches, uh, in book form, that is. We go to hell and back again to save the world, again through the magic of reading, and we fight the war after World War III. When I say that, I mean that you get the idea. Plus, part two of our discussion of 1637 Coast of Chaos, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Ho, 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 and welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along on this Christmas Eve. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, we are stuffing your digital stocking with part two of Griffin Barber's discussion with Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, Gorg Huff, and Bjorn Hassler about the newest Ring of Fire book, 1637, The Coast of Chaos. But first, the news. The next batch of eARCs are in, hot off the digital presses and ready to be downloaded to your e-reader. These are good for people on the naughty or the nice list. Let's take a look. First up is Servants of War, the first installment in the brand new Age of Ravens series by Larry Correa and Steve Diamond. Alarion Glasgow's quiet life on the fringes of the Empire is thrown into chaos when an impossible tragedy strikes his village. When he is conscripted into the Tsarist military, he is sent to serve in The Wall, an elite regiment that pilots suits of armor made from the husks of dead golems. But the Great War is not the only or even the worst danger facing Alarion, as he is caught in a millennia-old conflict between two goddesses. He must survive the ravages of trench warfare, horrific monsters from another world, and the treacherous internal politics of the country he serves. Next up is the second installment in Tim Aker's Men in Black at the Ren Fair urban fantasy series, Nightwatch. This one is called Valhellions. When John Rass signed up for Nightwatch, he expected it to be all fighting dragons and rescuing maidens, you know, hero stuff. But instead, he stuck patrolling game conventions and cosplayer competitions. Fortunately, all that changes when an honest-to-goodness necromancer shows up wielding a weapon created by Nazi occultists and accompanied by some badass evil Valkyries hell-bent on kicking off the end of the world. John and the team will go to great lengths, even Minnesota, to find out who's responsible for all this and foil their plans. Also, there's a giant dog who thinks the moon is a ball. It's epic. And finally, we take a look at the war after the next, in the Sean Patrick Hazlitt edited anthology, Weird World War IV. What if there were a war after Armageddon? How would the survivors emerging from World War III's radioactive slag heaps fight in this conflict? Wipe away the ashes of civilization and peer into a pit of atomic glass to witness the haunting visions of World War IV from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Stories by Jonathan Mayberry, DJ Butler, Stephen Barnes, Brad R. Torgerson, Martin L. Shoemaker, Michael Z. Williamson, and more. And that's it for the news. Now for part two of our discussion of 1637, The Coast of Chaos. So uh, and how about you, Paula? One of the really strange things in this world is how I got involved in a series that has so much religion <laughs> because I am basically a stone cold, somewhat militant atheist. And I have learned more about religion in the past 20 years than I was ever taught in the previous 20 years. 
so I'm st- I I often look at this and go, he wants what? <laughs> he thinks what? Right. It's always just a little bit confusing to me because it, I truly have absolutely. I was never taught religion as a child. I don't have any religion and I kind of think it's all bullshit. So every time I get involved in these, I have to go with what Gord thinks because I don't know, you know, I don't care, but I don't know. So is there anybody so I in just there? try to stay so there's, is there anybody in and there that really you would not want to meet because they would be pressing their views on you? Well, yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good answer. Uh, you are? Religion is their thing. I, you know, I, I, and I just don't do religion ever. That, uh, now, this does not mean that I don't appreciate certain aspects of things like Southern gospel and that sort of thing, because they're their own art form. Right. But when it comes to going to church and, and doing your thing and letting rattlesnakes bite you, not going there. <laughs> so how about you, Bjorn? Is there anybody that you wouldn't want to meet or that you would definitely want to meet? There are some of the captains who were working uh, for the English in New England who strike me as some pretty unsavory characters. Some of them are more complicated. Like Standish would be interesting to talk to because he's not one-dimensional. He, um, I guess I've not actually answering the question by talking about Standish because it would be fascinating to talk to this guy who comes across as very racist towards the Native Americans. And yet once once they both get older, um, Habamak, uh, who is a Wampanoag war leader, lives with the Standishes. And yeah. they're, they're, they're kind of this odd couple frenemies right and one of the things that i gathered from my my knowledge limited as it is of the those two figures is, is that it's kind of the you know the soldiers the the infantry on both sides have more in common with each other than they do with their own brass the people that are in command right so that's fair you know i think that the, and these guys are kind of brass anyway because they were leaders but mm-hmm. they were leaders of fighting people and fought themselves so they probably had a lot in common when it came to sitting down and going, you know, you remember that time when, or that kind of thing. So that yeah, would be fascinating. You know, Standish is such a name as well. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, that resounds through American history in any case. So it'd be interesting to, to uh, learn more about him. And he's well represented in here too. Uh, I, I really was impressed with all of your job with, you know, I, I'm knowing a little bit about why we have so many counties that are Orange County in this country, uh, you know, because of the Dutch influence. Um, so it was really impressive to me to you know see all this uh, about uh, Manhattan and uh, the Indians in uh, New Amsterdam and their relations with everybody. And then the Pilgrim colonies, which I don't know as much about, especially given how many different factions there appear to be within the uh, the pilgrim, quote unquote, pilgrim community, where, uh, you know, counter remonstrance and, and the Calvinists versus the uh, other groups. So uh, how much, and th- that seems to drive a little bit of the story, especially in uh, other, uh, when you want to get outside of, of Amsterdam or New Amsterdam, um, how much of that was, uh, is, a, is a result of the changes that the Ring of Fire brought in and how much was actually existing in the historical uh, record? The um, clash between the remonstrants and counter-remonstrants historically goes back to 1618 
um, in, in, in even earlier, but it came to a head at the Synod of Dort then. Um, and and um, the three of the major groups of European settlers, the Pilgrims, the Puritans, and the Dutch are all primarily different flavors of Calvinists. There's some exceptions in there, but to, generally, that doesn't mean they like each other. Um, one thing I was really surprised to find was that in our timeline in 1634, there was a fight between the Pilgrims from Plymouth and the Puritans from Massachusetts Bay that resulted in people getting shot in the head. It's, uh, it's one of those things that it, I can't remember who it was who said that, you know, the, the more similar the two areas are, the more they're fought over <laughs> as, as being just it's completely unacceptable that they don't believe this quarter inch difference from where I'm at that we're going to have to fight about it. Um, so there's so basically there's three of them and uh so mostly it was uh, an outgrowth of the actual history that was already going on. And uh, was it intensified by the ring, events of the Ring of Fire? Oh, yeah. Because the one thing that's important to remember is a core belief of Calvinism is that is predestination. And if God can come in and change the destination, then the whole core of Calvinism, that you are among the select or not among the select, goes Bye-bye. And that, that, that makes all the differences much more intense. Because yeah, it's, now it's the basic core belief is threatened. The really weird thing that, that comes up to me when you talk about Calvinism and the select is they're limiting their so-called God to a certain number of people in his house in so-called heaven. This has always just boggled my mind. If he's an almighty God, why are you trying to limit him? Who the hell do you think you are if you're following your so almighty God? So, you know. Somebody explain that one for me. Well, I think that part of it's the, the human condition of wanting to be special. Yeah. Uh, I'm special yeah, because my beliefs make me special. Weird. Part of the reality of English Calvinists is that they were on the outs. Um, you know, they were the... Uh, uh, they were not favored by uh, the British establishment. You can go over to Germany and there are whole areas where Calvinists are running a show. And there's a bit different dynamic there because you still get, you know, some of the same harsh attitudes and ultimately go back to predestination, but it's not, they don't particularly have a chip on their shoulder either. I mean, you know, they, uh, you know, Calvin and just a religion, most of them, you know, just were born into really. And it's just kind of like, meh. Um, but now you're going to hell, but that's okay. Really we can still do business it. with you. you got, huh? We know you're going to hell, but that's okay. We can still do business with you. Yeah. Now, the thing about, yeah, the, the, one of the things that, that has strategically guided Mike Stearns and the other Americans who followed him, because he's no longer the prime minister of the USC, he's a general, but uh, NPS is now the, um, uh, yeah. the prime minister of the USC. But, but there's a strategic um, view behind what the Americans do, which is they are trying to make sure that that the Brit that the European settlements in America that no one group gets too powerful. 
so that you don't have a situation, which is what happened in uh, in real history, which is by the where by the end of the uh, um, Seven Years' War, which is called the French and Indian War here in North America, basically the English settlers dominated the whole thing, right. um, and they then poured westward. And one of the things I think people don't quite often realize, and, and I think part of the reason is, well, I think people have a sort of tendency to want to find somebody to blame um, for bad stuff. Um, you have such a huge wave of, of settlers coming to North America from Europe that there was no way that things were not going to happen, regardless of who. I mean, you'll hear people criticizing uh, the American government, for instance, in particular President Andrew Jackson's uh, uh, one is usually the most singled out for having, um, you know, for having forced through the Trail of Tears. Um, Little Miss Muffet could have been the president of the United States and the Southern tribes would have been driven out. Because I, when I wrote the, uh, the, the books, the uh, Trail of Glory series, um, I was approached by Steve Sample, one of the editors at Del Rey, to write it. And what he wanted me to do was write, he asked me if I could write an author history where the Trail of Tears didn't happen. And I said, yeah, if you let me start in the time of the Vikings. Uh, I said, no, 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 I don't want that. I want something that's 19th century. And I said, no, Steve, I can't. I'd be engaging in historical malpractice. By the time you get to 1820, all told the five Southern tribes, um, often called the five civilized tribes, between them had perhaps 100,000 people, men, women, children, there were 400,000 white settlers in Tennessee alone by then. Right. I mean, and then you got the problem. It's a fire hose. Yeah, it's a fire hose of people. Huh? Yeah. It's a fire hose worth of people coming in every year. Yeah. And Andrew Jackson or any other president it did not have some kind of gigantic czarist army he could have used to stop it. Right. The military was small. Um, so one of the things, by the way, that, that used to irritate Jackson was that it would be typically New Englanders would be the ones who would criticize him for being overly harsh toward Indians. And, and his response was kind of, I'm just trying to get him to move. You're the ones who killed him. And the truth is the worst genocide in North America happened in New England. Um, that's why you can't find a whole lot of Indian tribes that come from there, or at least little tiny fragments of them, whereas the Cherokee are the largest tribe in the United States. Um, so the, the point I'm just making is that, that, that a lot of times what happens in history has, there are forces behind it that no individual or government is going to be able to do much to change. And uh, that's why one of the things in the beginning Mike Stearns wanted to do insofar as it's possible was to do kind of what the English did in Europe for centuries, which was to make sure no one power dominated Europe. Right. And he's trying to make sure the same thing happens or no one power gets too dominant in North America. One of the things that does is it makes it much easier for Indians to form alliances with one or another group of whites, which is what they did early on. Right. It became impossible when, you know, by the time you get it to where it's just the English and then even worse after the American Revolution, where it's a, where it's a government that doesn't even have to answer to anybody overseas. And one of the things I, I really was impressed by throughout the, the book was the Native Americans aren't, aren't infantilized or, or made to be powerless. 
they're making decisions, the best decisions they can sometimes, and sometimes not the best decisions based on the information that they have and what their, you know, history has been. They're real, actual people. Right. And that's one of the things that I, I was impressed by in this volume was that you guys got that for, for me. I mean, you know, I'm not an expert, but it seemed to me that you got that right. And I wanted to kind of congratulate you on that, that the, they're, they're making human decisions in the best way they know how based, based on their experience. And sometimes that's like, you know, mistrust. <laughs> I really don't trust you because, you know, you're a, a, a counter remonstrant or whatever it may be. Uh, or I don't trust you because you're not of my particular tribe uh, and how those those coalitions of tribes uh, would uh, be able to benefit from that lack of uh, centralized or uh, monolithic power coming in like the like it did actually happen in the in, in history. So, I, again, I wanted to congratulate you guys on that. The, um, but it, and it kind of goes with a larger theme of the whole work that seems to be, you know, uh, you, you uh, seized on an opportunity to, at least in fiction, uh, make a better history uh, for kind of everybody. Uh, is that, was that something you kind of set out to do or was it just kind of a natural outgrowth to I want to tell a story that's not uh, doom and gloom throughout this thing? I think that's a big part of most alternate history to try and make a better history than uh, what we had. Uh, I think it's true of Stephen Sterling's Island of the Sea of Time, of um, Harry Turtledove stuff. Certainly it's true of the whole 1632 universe and the Alexander Inheritance universe. It's, it's, yeah, it's about wanting there to be better outcomes than there were the first time around. Anybody have anything else to add on that one? All right. Well, um, I have so the thing that I want to tell the women, uh, ladies, I skipped my gram, my mammogram for eight years, and I'm left with this scar. So go get a damn mammogram now. Well said. Um, so, hey, you know, somebody's got to tell them and somebody's got to show them. And, you know, that's what's left. So go get a mammogram. And get your other cancer checks as well. Yes. All that is yes. very important. Um, so, uh, one aside from the great entertainment. I'm sorry. Chemo uh, is not any fun whatsoever, and radiation isn't any better. So go get a mammogram. This is my current crusade. Okay. Understood. So uh, what aside from its great entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading 1637, The Coast of Chaos? Say that again. What, aside from its value as entertainment, do you hope readers will carry with them after reading this book? I, that attitudes can change, that they can be modified by the circumstances and the opportunity to learn. Um, that would be mine. <laughs> What I try to do pretty much with any alternate history I write, um, and, and quite a few of my science fiction novels have a kind of alternate history uh, underlay to them. Mother of Demons does. Mother of Demons, my first novel, uh, uh, modern humans get, they don't get cast back in time. They get stranded on a planet that has an alien species that is in the Bronze Age, So it's got a certain kind of same dynamic. Um, the books I did with Kathy Wentworth, The Course of Empire, The Crucible of Empire, posit 
a future, but it's a future that's a um, aliens have conquered the earth. But but the real model for it is the uh, Roman conquest of the Greeks, and what happens when a civil same thing happened to the Mongols and Chinese. What happens when a a a group of people who are very very good at warfare uh, and and often very good at government. Uh, which both the Romans and the Mongols were, uh, conquer a people that are not very good at that. Uh, the Chinese were, but the Greeks sure weren't. Except the problem is the cultures they've conquered are actually a lot more advanced and sophisticated than the Romans. And what tends to happen is you give it a couple hundred years and it's really hard to tell who conquered who. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the people think of the Roman Empire as having ended in the fifth century. Uh, no, it lasted another thousand years in the East. And that was the larger part of the Roman Empire, the more populous part of the Roman Empire. They considered themselves Romans. They called themselves Romans, but they spoke Greek. And over time, the official language became Greek. Right. And. The main thing I try to do in author history is, is try to get people to understand that it, it didn't have to be this way. You know, that, that, um, that not that many things, there are broad parameters within which it's basically impossible to change anything. Um, I, I got, you know, Jim Bain wanted me to write an author history where um, George Washington and his Continental Army got transposed back in time to the third century AD, which was the period in the Roman Empire, which was called the time that it was just everything was chaos. And I, we argued and I eventually would have been forced to write it, but Jim passed away. Um, and you know, I just told Tony, I don't want to write this book because here's the problem. What's George Washington supposed to do in the year 271? There are, the prerequisites simply don't exist for a democratic society, whereas they did in the 16th century, 17th century. Or, but, even, or even in 52. Uh, yeah. 52 BC or 52 yeah, you know, yeah, when the right. Republic was existing in Rome. So there are, there are, there are broad parameters and some you can't get past some of them, but within those parameters, uh, things did not have to happen the way they did. Um, they could have, could have happened worse, uh, but they also could have happened better in some cases, much better. Um, and I, I'm not trying to, lecture people but but what i'd like to do in these books is get people to, get, to think about it it's right. a mental experiment basically and i just think about the fact that no it's not foreordained um, um one thing is that leadership matters it really really matters and that's true all through history um Anyway, enough of the lecture, but that's kind of what I'm trying to do with, with the books. How about you, Bjorn? I thought it was really interesting to see uh, how uh, some of these characters historically were open to the other, um, open to some of what the other societies had uh, up until events forced their hands. Um, in particular, the Pequot War was just uh, an ongoing disaster uh, in the New, New England area beyond just the fighting itself, which was brutal enough. Uh, but you, you have um, uh, Native Americans like uh, Weequash Cook and um, Habamak who are interested in Christianity at some level. It, it's really hard to tell from historical sources uh, exactly how much they understood and how much they accepted, whether they blended it with what they already knew. 
that sort of thing. Um, but w without having to go through the same history, um, there may be a chance for uh, there to be some greater understanding by which I don't necessarily mean that everybody's going to say we're all equally right, but they're going to say, I still think you're a screwball, but I'm not going to kill you for it. Excellent. And Paula? Gordon once said that in all of our stories, we would have only angels and dead devils because that's my tendency. <laughs> so I just want the world to come out right. <laughs> you know, let's just all do the right thing. The problem is we don't all agree on what the right thing is but let's try not to make it any damn worse. Uh, here, here, I'm, I'm right with you on that one. That's one of my mantras. Just uh, what am I doing to not make things worse? All right, so uh, we've been going at this for about an hour and uh, about time to draw it up. And uh, what else can we expect to see from you in the near future? Uh, we'll start with Bjorn. Uh, I am working on more novels in the nests or security line. And I certainly want to come back and revisit some of the characters from Coast of Chaos at some point. And uh, I'll, I'll ask this collectively of Paula and Gorg then. How about you two? Uh, right now we're working on the Siberian Adventure, which is the next Ru Russia book. And uh, the hero class aircraft is just landing in Durbusk and Shine is uh, reconsidering his options. Uh, so uh, there's more, co more coming in Russia. We're about two-thirds of the way through that one. Hmm? We should be finished with it by Christmas with any luck at all if you know, I don't have to take any more weeks off because I've got family coming Friday. <laughs> so, but yeah, Siberian campaign, not adventure. Okay. Is what we've got on the, on the manuscript. And then after Eric's that- going to change it anyway. On and it'll parts. probably change. <laughs> yeah. I usually wind up changing the yeah. Then we're probably going to work on one of our other universes. Good deal. And you, Eric? Yeah, Eric always changes our titles. What do we got to look forward to from you, Eric? Well, who's this? Who? To who's you. To me. Oh. Yes. Oh, boy. Um, the next 1632 novel that will be getting published is uh, After Coastal Cast is a, an, um, it's one of the mainline novels um, that, that uh, it particularly follows the characters of Gretchen uh, Richter and Jeff Higgins. Um, to a lesser degree, uh, Rebecca Bromdell and Mike Stearns doesn't really figure at all in it. Um, and the current title is 1637, The Transylvanian Choice, but I'm thinking of changing that to 1637, the Transylvanian decision, which I think I can get away with because I was gonna title the next book I do with Chuck Gannon, the Adriatic decision, but Chuck doesn't like that title. So since I've got the word decision available now, I think I'll, anyway, never mind. Um, what happens basically is, uh, and we're quite well along, we're about 130, 140,000 words into it. Uh, so it's well more than halfway done. What happens basically is uh, uh, Romania is divided into three parts, for those of you who don't know. And that's been true for centuries before there was a Romania. And the three parts are Transylvania in the northwest and what's the Romania, Moldova in the east, and Wallachia in the south. 
And just as a matter of historical record, everybody thinks that Dracula and the vampires come out of Transylvania. They don't. They come out of Wallachia because that's where Vlad Dracul came from. I don't know why the Transylvanians got blamed for it. But anyway, Movies. what happens is the I don't know. The prince, what happens in this book is the uh, the prince of Transylvania decides that he can, he was, all, all of them were satrapies of the uh, Ottoman Empire. And the prince of Transylvania decides he can break free and become independent. Given the situation, what he needs to do, though, is form an alliance with Bohemia, uh, which he does, and the Bohemians agree to do it, and the uh, USC agrees to send some troops in to help also. And specifically, they send in Jeff Higgins, Silesian Guard. Anyway, uh, basically, it's um, what happens in fighting over what the fate of Transylvania. And uh, it's a lot of fun to write. There's quite a bit of aviation in the book. Um, more than in any previous one I could think of. Um, anyway, that will be... Uh, Bane has a slot set aside, or they will, in the last quarter of next year, last trimester of next year, for a 1632 book, and it'll be that one. The next one that'll come out is almost certainly going to be the Russia book that uh, Paul and Gorg and I are doing. Um, and after that, it's hard to know yet. Griff and I are working on the third book in the India line of the story. Walter Hunt and I are working on a sequel to uh, Cardinal Virtues, which we've got underway. I'm doing a book set in England with uh, Jody Lynn Nye that is sort of simultaneously a, a sequel to Parcel of Rogues and the short novel I wrote for Ring of Fire 4 called Scarface. So I'll bring Harry Lefferts back on stage. And then, and then Griff and Walt and I are working on a uh, book set in what is today Angola and the Congo. Um, and the working title of that is 1637, The African Queen. Um, whether that'll stay the title or not, I don't know. Um, and we're well into that one. I think, what do we got, Griff? I think about 25,000, 30,000 words. Yeah. And, uh, and we got a well-developed plot outline. Um, and what else am I working on? I don't know when we're going to get back to the new world. Um, not right away. Um, but I've been thinking about it. And a lot of these books take time to chew on them. And this is one of them. Well, great. Well, this has been uh, the interview regarding uh, 1637, The Coast of Chaos, Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, Gorg Huff and Bjorn Hassler and a few others. Uh, it's available in ebook, uh, hardback, and eventually I believe audiobook. Uh, but uh, it will be available currently uh, for you at your better book sellers. I uh, hope you enjoyed this interview and we'll hope to see you soon. And now another installment in our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. We're in Littleton, New Hampshire, speaking to Captain Michael Werewolf, Wolf, commander of Bravo Company, 4th Battalion, 31st Infantry. Captain... You've been getting armed resistance, I understand. Yes, ma'am, the captain said. He had his helmet locked in place and body armor and battle rattle over his cold weather gear. A bit. We've some vehicle damage as well as three men in the hospital and one lightly wounded. That's ignoring the men we have in medical for cold weather injuries. Have you been taking a lot of fire? Not a lot, so much as how, ma'am the captain said, clearly frustrated. The majority is what is defined as harassing fire, just enough to get the troops' heads down and keep them from tapping the trees. Occasionally, we've gotten some sniper fire. 
That's what put my boys in the hospital, and I'm not real pleased about that. So far, fortunately, there have been no deaths. Have your troops been returning fire? Yes, ma'am. As has been said, it's a terribly sad day when Americans are fighting Americans over maple syrup. And have your men killed or injured any of the enemy? I'm having a hard time using the term enemy, ma'am. But if you're talking about the local aggressors, not to my knowledge, ma'am. Your troops have taken fire, and they've returned fire, and they haven't hit any of the local aggressors? Not to my knowledge, ma'am. Captain, we did some research on your unit. It has been in combat in Afghanistan against the Taliban and Pashtun tribesmen. They are considered some of the best mountain troops in the world. And this unit, with many of these same soldiers, scored an impressive record of kills. You're saying that you haven't killed or injured any of the local aggressors. That would seem to be the case, ma'am. That doesn't make much sense to me, Captain. Sorry about that. Perhaps you could explain to your viewers what the difference is here in New Hampshire. Is it possible that your troops are simply not aiming because these are people who matter and Afghan tribesmen aren't? You mean these are American citizens and Afghan terrorists aren't, ma'am? That would seem to be tautology. I believe I said matter, Captain. Have you been to Afghanistan, ma'am? No, I haven't, Captain. Does that matter? Only to particulars like why it's harder to hit someone who is bellied down in the snow using camouflage and cover and an expert sniper versus tribesmen who run screaming at you, firing from the hip in the open, ma'am. I don't know exactly who told you that Taliban are crack mountain fighters, ma'am, but they're not. Not anymore, anyway. Here, we're dealing with fellas that not only know the woods like the back of their hand, but are, in many cases, former U.S. military. And until recently, this was a pretty hard scrabble area. They did a lot of hunting for the dinner table. That tends to dial up your targeting skills, ma'am. And what they are targeting, with some care, I might add, are my troops, who, yes, don't particularly want to be doing this job, but they're following orders. I see, the reporter said. And when you collect the sap? We process it, the captain said, obviously growing impatient. You put it in pans and boil it over an open flame. We'll be mostly using local wood. Wood, the reporter said. Isn't that a bit... Doesn't that release a lot of greenhouse gases? Greenhouse gases? Yes, Captain, carbon dioxide. You're talking about global warming? Yes, it releases a lot of greenhouse gases. Even worse than the smoke from the fires is what gets boiled off of the sap. It's the most powerful greenhouse gas on Earth. I thought, doesn't it just release steam? Water vapor, the captain said, practically shouting. Look it up. It's the most powerful greenhouse gas on Earth. We're up here trying to keep our cities from being nuked, trying to collect sap, sap, while under fire, and you're worried about greenhouse gases. Are you absolutely insane? You didn't ask me about the vehicle damage. Go ahead and ask me about the vehicle damage, Miss Smarty Pants. Have... The reporter stammered. This sort of thing was gold, but having a heavily armed soldier seemingly losing it was a bit flustering. Have the insurgents been planting IEDs? No, the captain screamed. One of our unoccupied Humvees was taken out by a laser rifle. We don't even have laser rifles. The guys who have been so carefully and considerately shooting my boys in their thighs have laser rifles. We're outnumbered, outfoxed, and outgunned. And you're worried about carbon dioxide. Halt! Who goes there? Sergeant of the guard, asshole. Respond to challenge. Done. 
Uh, in a screwed up situation. You may pass. You never will. I'm serious. I've got that feeling. Like, the hills have eyes? No, you moron. Like, there are about five times our number of locals up in the hills just trying to figure out how to get us to leave without going to the trouble of killing us. Does have that feeling. I'd rather be ass deep in Taliban. I wouldn't go that far. But it is a terribly messed up deal. Yup. Yep. The sergeant counted on his fingers for a moment. Dick, did you say, yup, just a moment ago? Nope, said, yup. Guy pulling the tap out said, yup. Yup. There was a thunking sound and a clatter of metal. We went to a lot of trouble putting those taps in. Try doing it for a living, soldier boy. Thunk, tinkle. Quiet night tonight, Dick. That it is, Sergeant. I seem to remember some wind from the east, though. More like northeast. Northeast. Could have covered a lot of noise. We've got FLIRs. Probably shouldn't want to flip them down, soldier boy. Thunk. Tinkle. Probably not. Yup. Quiet night. Yep. Howdy, soldiers, Mr. Hazelbauer said, sighing. Come on in and take a load off. Mr. Jason Hazelbauer, the lieutenant said nervously. If the local resident started going off, they didn't have tasers to deal with him, or, for that matter, a javelin anti-tank round. The lieutenant hadn't really appreciated being tasked with making friendly contact with potential local insurgent anyway. The same, Mr. Hazelbauer said, waving for the squad to come in. We're about to set down to Vittles. Got enough for some hungry soldiers. Uh, sir, we have our own rations, the lieutenant said, just as he caught a whiff from inside. But if you insist. The Hazelbauer table was well set to fit a squad. Even with a couple of the daughters-in-law and kids occupying the house, there was room enough and food for six hungry soldiers, and it was in piles as befitted a farm kitchen. This is very kind of you, sir, ma'am, the lieutenant said. It was a bit surreal. They had good intelligence that Hazelbauer was one of the heads of the local resistance, perhaps the head of the regional resistance, and here they were having dinner with him. He'd met with some absolutely known bad guys in Iraq and Afghanistan over green tea, sitting in a farm kitchen in New Hampshire with a table piled with home-cured ham, turkey, corn, potatoes, and all the fixings was just different. Was in the 101 in Vietnam, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Know all about screwed-up orders, Lieutenant. Gonna pray? Yes, sir, the officer said, waving at his men to bow their heads. Most of them were from Christian backgrounds and didn't need to be prompted. Khalid was polite enough to just pretend. Dear Lord, we thank you for the blessings of a full table, a stocked larder, and all the good that you have brought to this house this land, this nation. We thank you, Lord, for 250 years of freedom. We thank you for bringing the blessings of peace and prosperity to this land. We ask your forgiveness for any way that we have transgressed against your will, Lord. And we ask your forgiveness, Lord, for these fine young men who through no fault of their own find themselves trapped between their orders and the oath they swore in your name, Lord, to uphold and defend the Constitution of these United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Please forgive us all our sins, Lord, and bring us to your everlasting home, no matter how far we have fallen from your eyes, Lord. Amen.
Amen, the lieutenant said. Suddenly he wasn't hungry. Honey, there's somebody at the door. Jonathan K-9 Kolosinski got up from his computer, still mentally composing the response he was putting on a blog, and walked to the door. He wasn't especially worried about security. Besides the fact that things like home invasion were incredibly rare in New Hampshire, Lovey Pooh was sitting attentively by the door. Lovey Pooh being an 80-pound German shepherd dog that at a quiet word would probably be able to take out an entire street gang. Jonathan was an eight-year veteran of the Air Force who spent his entire career as a handler. The term was contingency response. He'd lost two partners in the Mideast area of operations, one in the sandbox and one in the rock pile, respectively. The IED that got Ranger also got him, which was why he was sitting in front of a computer instead of out working the hills with the rest of the troops. Lovey Pooh had retired with him and was now well on his way to being the top stud Alsatian in New England. Three of Lovey Pooh's harem padded into the hallway quietly as Jonathan reached the door. Mindy was trailing because she was well into pregnancy. Sits, Jonathan said without looking around. All three bitches' butts hit the ground as if synchronized. He'd taken a glance through the side windows and had seen that the visitor was a short man wearing a fur hat. Probably one of the neighbors, although he wasn't immediately familiar. And it was a cold night to be out. Hi, I'm Vernon Tyler, Tyler said leaning over and glancing at the four very large German shepherds. All four had those four quarters that made them look like canine fullbacks. What bothered him most was that they were just sitting there, quietly. That was never a good sign. I was wondering if I could have a word. Beautiful dogs, Tyler said, taking a sip of tea. Ah, uh, Alsatians? German shepherd dogs, Jonathan said, shrugging. Some people get worked up over having dog in the name. Lovey Poo is a Deutsch stud. The Germans just have better lines than the U.S. The bitches are U.S. Anna, Gretchen, Mindy, meet Mr. Vernon. All three of the bitches sat up and whined, then lay back down. I'd heard you were a breeder, Tyler said with a laugh. They didn't quite cover it. Schutzhund? Hmm, Jonathan said. To what do I owe the honor of the visit, Mr. Vernon? Hate to bother you at this time of night, Tyler said automatically, but it's been a long day and miles to go before I sleep and all that. I'm sort of outtaking the tenor of the clans. You move back here rather than being a newcomer, so it's not exactly like talking to one of the families that has never left. I've found I've gotten straighter answers when there are answers to be had. What's your take? He didn't really have to ask about the Horvath demanding the maple syrup. It was pretty much the only topic of conversation to be found in most of Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire. I've friends and family live in Boston, Mr. Tyler, Kolosinski said, using the pure New England bar. So it's a hard thing to say, wipe out the world if you want, but we're not going to give up our maple syrup. It's maple syrup. Agreed, Tyler said, nodding. What's your take? What everyone in the U.S. government, what everyone in the media, what the Glatun and the Horvath all want to know, Tyler said, is what it might take, which is a far cry from cutting trees for a living. <laughs> and the answer is, I'm taking the tenor of the clans. Okay, Kolosinski said, chuckling. One more question, and I'll try to answer yours. Clans? 
New England is not by any stretch of the imagination monolithic, Tyler said with a sigh. Nor are the maple areas of Canada where I've also been. Old farming families that stretch back to the revolutionary period and pre-revolution. Hippies that moved up for the cheap land and libertarian approach. Southerners like me who have moved here so they can be around relative conservatives. Communes, militias, modern lefty gay bed and breakfast owners, people who want to declare independence and throw out all the lefties. My land grab and the Horvath threat have pretty much moved out anyone who doesn't love this area. The one influx of Glatoon credits we got is more influx than this region has ever seen. But nobody wants to be at ground zero of the Horvath threat. Nobody, American or Canadian, wants to be in the middle of a war with our own militaries. What's left are people who just refuse to leave. And there aren't really major regional variations. Oh, somewhat when you cross New Hampshire to Vermont or Massachusetts, but not even that too greatly. What there are are clans, like-thinking groups. I almost think New England needs to be parliamentary rather than territorial, but I digress. I'm taking the tenor of the clans. Which group am I? Kolosinski asked. You said one question, Tyler said, smiling. And your answer to what's your take more or less puts you in one. Generally older, not really old, but older, families that stay here because this is home. It ought to be easy, the former sergeant said. It's maple syrup. Who wants to die over maple syrup? He looked at Tyler, who shrugged in what might be agreement. But, Kolosinski continued, shrugging, the government is offering to buy it. Pretty fair price. Then they'll turn it over to the Horvath. Cheaper than trying to take it, Tyler said. Agreed, but it's still taken. This isn't... This isn't what I put my life on the line for. This isn't what I fought for, what I lost partners for. I'm damn near my life. Give me liberty or give me death. More or less, Kolosinski admitted, sighing. I've got two kids and a wife. I have to think about them. Contingency plans? Tyler asked. I was in contingency response, Kolosinski said, chuckling. Uh... Yeah. This simply isn't working, Mr. President, the Army Chief of Staff said. We've got 20% of units reporting a variety of maladies. We've issued administrative punishments for malingering, but this is more like mutiny. And as fast as they do manage to tap trees, if they don't ruin the taps, the locals are sneaking in at night and taking the taps out and leaving little notes about the quality of our men's work. Last, even if everything was working perfectly, our men are unfamiliar with the process, unfamiliar with the terrain. And it turns out to be harder to find the trees than we'd thought. There are large stands, but many of the best trees are scattered in pine woods. It simply is not working. Frankly, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, it's becoming a huge farce. I'm not sure the army, per se, is turning into a laughingstock simply because of all the press reports where everyone's going wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But the operation is becoming a laughingstock. There are millions of lives at stake, General, the president said. And these people are playing games. I'm fully aware of that, Mr. President, the general replied. That does not mean that this is an achievable goal. It might be, the National Security Advisor said. Oh, not gathering the maple syrup. You only have to watch the SNL skit to see that. We just need to be clear about the goal. The goal is protecting our cities, the President said. Whatever that takes. And that may be a goal we are achieving, Mr. President the NSA said. I don't see it, the CJCS. 
at this rate, we are not going to get any appreciable amount of maple syrup. Neither are the Canadians. They are having the same problems. That is not the goal, the NSA said again. The goal is not getting rocks dropped on our cities. And that goal may be achievable. We don't have Horvath internals, but they must be getting most of what we are looking at. I doubt at this point that they are getting any significant internals from the resistance. What they are getting are the same externals we're getting. Of course we want peace in our time, but... But won't cut it, the president said. A certain kind might, the NSA said. We, the civilized, urbanized, liberal, the Marine Corps commandant filled in. The people who are under threat, the NSA said sourly, are doing our best to collect the maple syrup that the Horvath demanded. We're doing everything we can. More, the Army Chief of Staff said. We're stepping all over every document that gives us legal authority to exist. Necessarily, I agree, but at some point we're going to face real mutiny. I expected it before now. We're trying, the NSA said trying really hard. That's clear on all the news broadcasts. Yep, the Marine Corps Commandant said. We're being good collaborators. General, the President said, I appreciate your feelings in this matter, but the insertions are not helpful. Sir, your point, the President said. The people who are incurring the wrath of the Horvath are the people in that region, the NSA said. And the few contacts with the rebels that have been broadcast are almost all contemptuous of city folk. They basically are saying they don't care if cities are nuked. It's not a threat to them. I'm from the South. We have our ways. Mr. President? Something that Vernon said to an FBI agent, the president said, about, I guess you would say, manipulating the Horvath. I've been puzzled by the line. I'm from the South. We have our ways. What ways? The Marine Corps commandant leaned back and started tapping his mouth as if to erase a smile. Commandant, the president said, you have a comment? Rather refrain, Mr. President, the Commandant said, still trying not to smile. But I think I know what he meant. Graduated from the Citadel, Mr. President. So you're of the South as well, the President said. And? Really rather refrain, Mr. President, the Commandant said, then barked a laugh as if at a joke he'd just told. Seriously, you do not want to know at this time. Possibly ever. I will currently accept your position, the president said warily. And where is Mr. Vernon? He is the one person of note who has not been heard of recently. Moving mostly, the director of the FBI said. Scattered meetings turned up by surprise at some town hall meetings in New Hampshire and Vermont, even back and forth across the border to Canada, though we're not sure where or how. We're only catching traces of him. Frankly, he's about as hard to find as a much taller insurgent. We're not even sure he's part of the insurgency. He's acting more like a neutral. I'm the president of the United States, the president snapped. This is insane. I'm responsible for this nation. People are going to die. Cities are going to die. Depends on whether he's right or not, Mr. President, the Marine Corps Commandant said, still smiling slightly. He tapped his lips again. Depends on whether he's right about the ways of the South. That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that is it for this Christmas Eve edition of the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. 
praise, thanks, and gratitude to Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, Gorg Huff, and Bjorn Hassler for talking with Griffin Barber today. And good night and Merry Christmas, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of the North Pole. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.